Hi, today I'm talking about medical conditions or special needs in international adoption. If you listen to my episode about the Hague Convention, I talked about the characteristics of children who are adopted internationally from a really high level, and I talked about those broad three categories of children who are available to be adopted internationally, namely children who are part of sibling groups, children who are older, and children who have some special needs or characteristics. Um, So today I'm digging more into that last category of special needs or characteristics, um, where the vast majority of countries, all the countries that I'm familiar with that are doing international adoption now, so everything that came up in my research, and I am by no means the expert, but from my experience of researching 2018 to 2019 and selecting a program and an agency, there are not countries that are adopting healthy infants these days to U.S. families. Um, So families are expected to have some level of openness either to a healthy older child, a sibling group, or a younger child who has these special needs or characteristics. So the way that you select the needs that you're open to is with a medical conditions checklist or a special needs checklist. And we did a couple different versions of this checklist. Um, We did one that I would call the simple list. This is the list that was provided early in the process by our agency that works with Columbia. And that list had some dozens of conditions on it with a simple box next to each item. And you either leave the box alone if you're not open to it, or you check the box if you are open to it. That list is basically what was used to fill out our home study. So our home study concludes with a paragraph about the type of child that we are approved to adopt. And it goes over the age, the gender, and it lists out all of the special needs or characteristics that we are open to. And the reason I keep saying characteristics is because it's not just a list of medical conditions. It is also a list of things like the child's history. So things like the child being abandoned, having an unknown family history, um, the child having a trauma history. So those are some things that um, aren't necessarily a medical diagnosis, but that families do need to specify if they are or are not open to that type of background. So the simple list, the one that had a few dozen conditions, um, that list included conditions in several categories. So the categories are birth conditions, like prematurity, central nervous system conditions, developmental delays, digestive genital urinary conditions, so those three, digestive genital and urinary, that's one category, genetic conditions, infectious diseases, orthopedic conditions, hearing and vision impairment or loss, heart conditions, skin conditions, behavior and psychological conditions, and child and birth family history, um, like fetal alcoholic syndrome is one example. Um, And then, yeah, within each of those categories, there are several conditions that are listed. Um, So the simple form, you just go down the list, you check the box for a yes, you leave it alone for a no. Um, That got translated into paragraph format for our home study. And then later in the process, as we 
we're filling out our dossier, which is the giant packet of everything that goes to Columbia. Um, we filled out a much longer list. This list had over 200 conditions listed in Spanish, and our agency provided the English translation of those conditions. And that one, rather than just a single box where you check for a yes or leave it alone for a no, this list had three columns. So there's a column for accept, would consider, and don't accept. Um, so this one gives you more flexibility and it gives Columbia a better understanding of what you are very open to versus considering and then to wouldn't accept period. Um, there's also a catch-all box and a catch-all phrase that goes into the home study that's something like, um, or would consider other special needs on a case-by-case basis. Because even with these lists of 200 plus conditions, we still can't cover everything that a child could possibly have. And from the families uh, in the Columbia program who I've talked to, um, a lot of their children's conditions don't fall into these clean categories. Um, or they're like a genetic condition that isn't identified in one of these lists. So um, there are almost countless conditions that could come up. And even if your child has a particular diagnosis while they're in their home country, that diagnosis might change when they come home. Um, anyone who has had a medical condition knows that it can be kind of mysterious. And it can be like an episode of House where you go along for years sometimes unraveling your medical mystery. And it's the same with these kids. Um, so adoptive families are trained or they should all be trained to expect that their child's medical condition may is likely what is on the paper uh, or what is likely in the documents that we get from the country, um, but that it could be something different. It could be something better or it could be something worse. Um, in terms of prognosis. So that is something that everyone should be prepared for. Um, When people aren't prepared for that, that's where sometimes you see adoption disruptions or dissolutions that turn into second chance adoptions. Um, So it's really important for adoptive families to go through this process and to be really honest with themselves. Um, If you're adopting with a partner or a spouse, it's important to be honest with them about what you believe you can and can't handle and to not um, let your heart take over this process. And that's way easier said than done. And for people who know me, they would probably laugh at me saying that because I am the person who lets my heart take over this process where um, I would check a lot more boxes than I probably should check, um, especially considering this is going to be our first child. We would like to add younger siblings to our family in the future. And um, that is going to be a big factor in what we are thinking about when we're thinking of what we can and can't handle and what our day to day life is going to look like. How many appointments can we go to? How much time can we spend at hospitals or with different specialists and so on? So that's a lot. This whole thing is really overwhelming. Out of everything in the process, I would say the medical conditions special needs checklist is the most overwhelming part. And 
If it's not the most time-consuming part, it probably should be the most time-consuming part or one of the most time-consuming parts of the whole process. Um, aside from the things where we're simply waiting, like we're waiting on things to get mailed, we're waiting on things to get apostilled. Um, but as far as something that you do within your own, own home, within your own family, making this decision, it should take some time. For us, it took several weeks and I was really ambitious in the beginning and I set a date, I printed out our papers and I told Nate, on this day, we're going to fill this out and it'll take like an hour and then we'll send it back to the agency. Um, and that was totally unrealistic because you start going down the list, you check a box, check a box, check a box, you get to the fourth thing in the list and it's a term you've ever heard of. Um, and that's going to happen over and over and over again. So you get stopped several times as you're going through the list just to do research and to Google. And in some cases to do a little bit more translation because some of the Spanish to English translation of medical conditions isn't perfect um, or the terminology is confusing or there's a different medical term that we use here. So um, it should take a while because... It's a really serious thing for your family to consider and to make sure that you're checking boxes that you are really, truly, 100% going to be comfortable with when you come home with this child. Um, so, like I said, the list really is a list of characteristics as well as conditions. So there are some like unknown family history that I think for the vast majority of adoptive families, that's an easy box to check. That's kind of the name of the game when you're adopting, right? That you're not going to have perfect knowledge about the family history of the child that you're adopting. So that's one that it is still a box on the list. So you still have the option to check that no, you're not comfortable with it. But um, at the same time, you need to recognize that there's going to be some amount of unknown in every single one of these kids. And there's going to be different levels of openness with birth family where it might be totally closed and you might have some set of information about family history at the time you adopt the kid and you might never get any other info for the rest of your days. So unknown family history, I think, I mean that for us, that's an easy one to check and I will not, um, share everything that is in our list because every family is different and um, sharing what's in our list I think just brings up more questions than answers like questions from people wondering well why did you say no to this or why did you say yes to this or aren't you worried about this happening if you said yes to this um, and it's really a decision between me and Nate and um and our medical providers and our insurance company, unfortunately. Um, but mainly between me and Nate. Um, so I don't want to share too much about what we have on our list, but there are a couple of conditions that I do want to talk more about um, because these are conditions that U.S. families might not be extremely familiar with, but that as we learned about some conditions, we got a lot of clarity and, um, and did research that 
really help pave the way for which boxes we checked. Before I go into more detail about some of the conditions we learned about, I just want to give some tips for other families who are in this step of the process because it is really overwhelming and these are the things that I wish someone had told me when we were at this step of the process. So I have five tips and this is also a reminder to myself if we ever go through this again. So number one, take your time. This one is obvious but was not obvious to me at the time. Like I said, I thought this would be an hour maybe two hours if we were distracted and the reality is that it took weeks and it took a lot of prayer and it took a lot of sleeping on it and discussing the same conditions multiple times spread out over multiple days to try to come to a decision um we also involved our social worker in a lot of those conversations and i don't know if that's something that made her uncomfortable but she seemed really willing and happy to talk with us um not to tell us what to do but as a sounding board um, and to um, almost just to mirror back what we were saying to her and to help gently guide us down the path of checking the right boxes for our family. Um, so uh, enlist whatever help you need to get that sounding board um, while, of course, maintaining that privacy and um, that wall around this process. That Ultimately, it's between... Um, you and your spouse if you're adopting with a spouse or a partner. Um, number two, the internet is your friend. And um, I wish that I was pointed a little bit more in the right direction of the resources that are the most helpful. So I'll do that here. Number one is Rainbow Kids. Um, RainbowKids.com. They have a tab at the top of their site for special needs. It's super easy to navigate. And it's a great starting point. I will say they don't have all of the information. It's not a medical website, um, but they have really good high-level information about a lot of the special needs that you're going to see in the checklist. Um, and they also include links to the profiles of waiting children. Um, so children who are available to be adopted internationally who might have those conditions. And so that can be helpful, especially if there's pictures or videos of a child with a particular condition um, and you can get a better idea of what that looks like. YouTube is also really helpful. Um, there are some parents who have documented their children's journeys through uh, physical therapy with a certain orthopedic condition or treatment for blood conditions or different things um, or different children's hospitals who have documented what certain conditions look like. There are also some really cool um, infographic kind of style videos that outline what the symptoms are of a condition, what diagnosis looks like, um, what daily life looks like, what variations can be in a certain condition. So YouTube is a treasure trove of information. I know there's a lot of garbage on YouTube um, and anyone who has kids that are YouTube age knows that more than anyone, but, um, yeah, I highly recommend it as a resource to actually see with your own eyes, um, and hear with your own ears what life is like with a certain condition. If you are going to start your search at Google, then I recommend searching with terms like living with, and then that name of that condition or children with, and the name of that condition, uh, Boston's children's hospital, sorry, Boston children's hospital, Shriners for orthopedic conditions and St. Jude's and several other hospitals 
have a lot of really great info and links to specialists who deal with certain pediatric conditions. So um, there's a ton of info out there. I think the most complicated that this process got is when there was a translation issue, like a Spanish to English or English to Spanish translation issue in understanding something. But once we got the term down, um, it's super easy to find as much info as you need about a condition at this step of the process. Um, but going back to step number one, take your time. Don't rush it. Um, there is limitless info out there and, um, you need to get as much knowledge so you can make a really informed decision that you're going to be comfortable with, uh, long-term. Number three, look at your local resources. So, um, if you're looking at a specific condition, are there specialists in your area? Are there hospitals that deal with that particular issue really often? Um, or in our case, even better, are there Spanish-speaking specialists in our area? Um, so that's an important factor, and it's also something that will likely come up in your home study if you're at the step of the home study where you're describing what kinds of resources are available in your area. It's going to be helpful to state outright in your home study that you have um, – a Shriners Hospital or a Boston Children's or some kind of children's hospital that is reputable and well-respected in your area. Uh, Number four, look at your insurance provider. So our insurance provider has a website and that website has a tool to estimate your cost of treatment. This helped make the decision really easy for some conditions where we looked at the typical childhood treatment for that condition And sometimes the monthly cost is more than our mortgage. And sometimes the monthly cost is really low with some affordable generics. So that makes a clear cut decision because if we simply can't afford to treat a certain condition, then we can't say yes to it. Last tip for two parent households. I recommend after you've done all of your research to fill the checklist out separately. So do it on your own, go to separate rooms or sit at different corners of the table and meet up after you finish your checklist. On the lines where you match, where you've answered the same way, that's easy to just plug into your final form exactly how you have it. And then on items where you differ, just have a quick discussion. Um, If the difference is because of a simple misunderstanding about what that condition is or what it looks like, then that's easy, you can resolve it. But if the difference is something bigger, if it turns into a heated debate or something where you really start having to do some soul searching, then it's probably a no. Um, Both parents should be 100% on board if you're going to successfully go through the adoption journey together. Um, It's not fair to one parent if um, one of you is on board for something and the other is not. And trust me as the person who was the one usually fighting and getting more emotional about wanting to say yes to certain things. Um, while my husband thankfully is more pragmatic and, um, was able to keep more of the long-term perspective. So I'm glad that he was there to balance me out. Um, cause like I said, my heart could easily take over. And, um, I know a lot of parents who, give birth to children who have special needs. They say they could never imagine life any other way. 
Um, but when you're making this decision, it is something that, yeah, both parents need to be on board for exactly what you are going to sign up for. A quick disclaimer before I go into talking about some of these specific special needs. I don't have a medical background. I'm not a doctor or a nurse, so I'm speaking to these conditions as someone who has done research on them from the perspective of a prospective adoptive mom. And I want to call these ones out because they're going to appear on every family's checklist and every family is going to make a decision about them. And I want our friends and family and other adoptive families to understand more about these conditions in particular to make a more informed decision. I'm not saying that the following are things that every family should accept, not by any means. And I'm not even saying that there are conditions that we checked yes to either. Um, but hopefully this just gives a bit of a shortcut to research and to understanding these things. The first condition that I want to talk about is clubfoot. So clubfoot is an orthopedic condition. It can affect one foot where it's unilateral, or it can affect both feet, making it bilateral. Um, the condition is present at birth, so it is not something that would develop later in life. Um, and it's something that affects about one in 1,000 births in the U.S. Boys are more affected than girls, so boys are about two times more likely than girls to develop clubfoot. And in most cases, the exact cause is not known, but there are a few risk factors that are known around clubfoot. Um, one is family history. So if one or both of the parents had clubfoot when they were born, then the child is more likely to be born with it. Um, another one is smoking during pregnancy, and another is a lack of amniotic fluid around the baby as they're developing. So clubfoot, since it affects one in 1,000 births, it is fairly common, and it is common enough that the treatment for it is very well documented, and it's fairly consistent everywhere that you would go in the U.S. Um, so treatment for clubfoot would begin within the first weeks of a child's life. Um, it is visible at birth, and it's very visible at birth, so it's not something um, that's very difficult to diagnose. Um, so treatment begins within the first few weeks of life, and it starts with a series of casts. So it could be something like five to seven casts that are applied. They're plaster Paris casts, and they'll be applied to over time to position that foot or those feet where you need them to be. Um, so the casting will be changed about every week. Um, and at the end of that series of casts, when the feet or the foot is in a good position, then the next step usually involves making a small incision to help lengthen the Achilles tendon. Um, without doing that step, there's a chance that the Achilles tendon will never lengthen enough to actually touch the heel down to the ground. So um, often that incision is going to be applied and then one more cast um, while that heals. And then after the casting is over and that incision is healed and it leaves about a one centimeter scar, um, then you go into the bracing phase. So also called the boots in the bar, uh, the child will wear boots that actually overcorrect the position of the feet. So the feet will be pointed uh, pretty far outward, um, like a dancer position. And the feet are held in place with a bar that goes in between the two feet. Um, and those are specially fitted to the child 
um, and the child will wear the boots and the bar for 23 hours a day for the first three months. And then after that, they can go down to about 12 hours a day, so basically wearing the boots and the bar every night that they go to sleep and during naps. Um, and that will go on for about three years. So um, usually well before a child is going to school, um, going to preschool or going to kindergarten, they are done with their clubfoot treatment. And so it's something that doesn't prevent a child from participating in youth sports, um, any kind of sports that they want to, and it's not something that's going to affect their mobility long-term. Um, it is a condition that, like I said, has really well-documented treatment and pretty consistent treatment um, and something that any orthopedic specialized children's hospital is seeing really often. Um, so not a terribly scary condition to deal with for those specialists. The next condition I'll talk about is HIV. HIV is the virus that eventually progresses to AIDS if it goes untreated. Around 38 million people around the world have HIV or AIDS, and that includes 1.8 million children under the age of 15. In the United States, around 1.1 million adults and children are infected. HIV prevention services have come a really long way over the years to the point that there was a 70% decline in new infections among children between the years 2000 and 2015. The risk of a mother passing HIV to her child in the process of um, giving birth or having a newborn can be reduced to less than 5% if she has access to antiretroviral therapy or ART during pregnancy, delivery, and breastfeeding. It's recommended generally that infected infants start treatment immediately. And as far as access to treatment goes, about half of the infected children in the world have access to ART. There's a lot of misinformation and a lot of fear around HIV, um, especially HIV in children. It's something that we don't really talk about and the general population doesn't know a lot about. So I want to talk about some of what we learned about HIV as we went through this process of deciding what special needs we were or were not open to. Um, so All God's Children International, they're an adoption agency, and they also do a lot of work for orphan care and family preservation throughout the world. They have this document called Five Myths About HIV that they share with potential or prospective adoptive families. So I'll go through this list because this is all really, really good information. So myth number one, it's not safe for the rest of my family to have an HIV positive family member. This is absolutely not true. And this myth is really damaging to the prospects of becoming a part of a permanent family for children who are infected with HIV through no fault of their own. Of course, um, it's not something that would ever be transmitted in a normal household setting. It doesn't spread through shaking hands, hugging, sharing dishes, sharing towels, sharing bed sheets, using the same toilet, um, playing sports together. It's not spread through saliva. Um, you can't become infected through normal contact and sharing normal household things. HIV can only be contracted through unprotected sex, intravenous drug use, pregnancy, childbirth, or breastfeeding. Myth number two, people with HIV don't live long. So um, I mentioned antiretroviral therapy earlier, and 
it has come such a long way that HIV is now a very treatable and very manageable illness. And people who are receiving treatment and who are sticking to their treatment can live a completely normal, healthy, and long lifespan. Myth number three, HIV medications are impossible to manage. My child would be at the doctor constantly. So this is a real worry, especially for people who are considering adoption, who work full-time or who have a lot of other kids at home, and they're wondering, how much time can I dedicate to my kid's medical care? So here's the truth. HIV can be managed with daily medication, with the antiretroviral therapy, and that therapy causes the virus to reach a point where it's undetectable in the blood for most individuals. So with proper treatment and monitoring, children who are HIV positive just need to go to the doctor every few months. So it's not something where you're constantly at the hospital or where you need to move next door to the hospital. Myth number four, a child with HIV would be discriminated against. So unfortunately, people and children with HIV are still discriminated against, but that does not need to be the case. There are laws in place to protect individuals with HIV from discrimination, and these laws state that you do not need to disclose a person's HIV status to schools, sports teams, daycare services, or even the dentist. Um, So really, the child's primary care provider, their doctor, is really the only person that needs to have that information in order to treat the child. But a child can go to school and they can be a part of team sports without that information ever needing to be disclosed to teachers or principals or other students. Number five, a child with HIV will never be able to have a normal life or relationships. So this is also a real worry. People worry about what are the prospects for a child I adopt to grow up, to move out to have a family of their own. Um, And the truth is a person living with HIV can grow up, get married, and even have children, whether this child is a man or a woman, they can have children with really minimal risk of spreading the virus to others or spreading the virus to future children. Um, So drugs are available for the partners of HIV positive individuals that drastically lower the risk of transmitting HIV And treatment is also provided throughout pregnancy and throughout breastfeeding so that a child's chances of contracting HIV from their mother are drastically reduced. So there's a lot of stigma around HIV, a lot of misinformation, a lot of confusion or just obscurity around it. Um, And it doesn't need to be that way. HIV is manageable and it's something that there's a lot of support and a lot of therapy available today to help a child live a normal, happy, healthy life, regardless of their HIV status. There are some special needs that are on the medical conditions checklist that even though they're listed and there's a checkbox, they aren't really optional. So in the case of our adoption agency, they list the following as things that every family must be open to. So regardless of what you check, you need to be open to these things. So birth mother disadvantages, a lack of proper nutrition and environment and emotional care, little to no prenatal care, prematurity and low birth weight, the institutionalization of a child, meaning the child has been in an orphanage or in foster care, um, and they might have gone through multiple placements 
in several different foster homes. Um, and then small weight, size, or growth, little or unknown social histories and developmental delays. So despite that, there's still a section where a family can check the exact types of developmental delays that they are open to. So um, in our case, there's boxes for speech delay, motor delay, cognitive delay, and growth delay. So what is the developmental delay? It's exactly what it sounds like. It's really just the fact that a child is behind a certain developmental milestone in comparison to other children who are the same age. Um, so you expect a child to be walking by a certain point, and this child in question is still not walking. For example, that's an example of a typical motor delay. Um, children who are adopted, it's often said, are expected to be about half of their cognitive age when it comes to their developmental progression, meaning that a child who is chronologically four years old, they were born four years ago, that developmentally in certain areas, they'll look more like a two-year-old. Um, so a lot of that delay is going to be social delay. A lot of that is going to be cognitive delay. And then there's another term um, that you'll most likely come across if you're going through the adoption process and you're filling out a medical conditions checklist, which is a global developmental delay. So a global developmental delay can mean a lot of things. And I mean, the rule is basically that there's two or more areas of delay. So a child has a motor delay and a speech delay, or a child has a cognitive delay and a social delay. So um, it's really, really a broad term. Um, it's not really one specific condition. It's not something that you can take medication for or that you'll have cured. Um, but there's a lot of different therapies available to address different developmental delays. Um, and those therapies are really going to depend on the causes. So causes of developmental delays can be genetic or hereditary conditions, metabolic disorders, brain trauma, um, severe psychosocial trauma, including PTSD, exposure to toxic substances. So this is a broad category. This can include prenatal alcohol or drug exposure, but it could also include things in the environment after the child is born, um, like lead poisoning. Um, some very serious infections can lead to a developmental delay or um, deprivation of food or deprivation in the environment. So adopted children um, are always going to come from a background of trauma. Um, and so if a child is adopted and there's not any kind of developmental delay, um, I think that's less common than there being some developmental delay, especially when you're adopting older and school-aged children. Um, <clears throat> the older you're adopting, or if you're looking at sibling groups, the less likely you are to find developmental delays. So developmental delays can look like a lot of different things. It can look like um, learning more slowly, um, needing more time to work on homework assignments compared to other kids. It can look like a child, a baby or toddler not rolling over, sitting up, crawling or walking when expected, difficulty communicating, um, talking or reading or writing, having trouble remembering things, 
difficulty with problem solving or difficulty with everyday tasks like getting dressed or using the restroom. Um, And therapies are available in every place throughout the U.S. And Columbia is excellent about providing these therapies to all of the children in their care. So the different therapies that can address developmental delays include physical therapy for children with motor delays, occupational therapy, which can be for a lot of different things. It can help with motor skills again, um, but it can also address sensory processing disorders or sensitivity to certain sensory stimuli um, and self-help issues like using the restroom and getting dressed. Um, Speech and language therapy can address, obviously, speech and language, um, communication, and then early childhood special education and behavioral therapy can address different socially appropriate behaviors. Um, Also, when children come home, a good thing to do is to look at an individualized learning plan or an ILP. Um, So there are resources that you can get from your state or from your school district so that your child is getting the right resources that they need to thrive when they go to school. So um, developmental delays, I wanted to address those because they're so broad that I think it's easy to get intimidated and to think, I don't know what this is or what am I saying yes to? Um, And it's really hard to predict exactly what you're saying yes to when you check the box yes for a developmental delay. Um, But it's absolutely something that should be expected in at least one area um, with any adopted child. Um, So I think it completely makes sense that our agency just makes a statement on page one of the medical conditions checklist to say you need to be open to developmental delays, period. I hope that this helps you understand more about the medical conditions checklist or the special needs and special characteristics that we're talking about when we're talking about an international adoption program. Um, It's often going to be said on kind of the front pages of any of these international adoption programs that families must be open to special needs. And I think it's really important that adoptive families and their support networks understand exactly what special needs and characteristics means because it's such a broad term and it's used a lot differently in international adoption than it's used in our vocabulary most of the time when we're talking about special needs. Um, Again, I want to repeat that I'm not saying that every adoptive family should be open to clubfoot or HIV, but I think the research piece of this is really important and the more time that you can spend on researching and understanding the conditions that you're going to make a decision about, the better. Thanks for listening. I'll include the links to the books and articles I talked about in the show notes. And if you want to follow our journey and what we're learning about trauma-informed parenting on Instagram, we are at freezeadopt, F-R-E-E-S-A-D-O-P-T. Thank you.